Good morning, Twitter. I'm Hayes Brown. She's Stephanie McNeil, and this is AM to DM. Okay, before we get going, yeah. I have to do some sports news for. I know everyone here at BuzzFeed loves sports, sports so much. Just want to give a quick shout out to the Clemson Tigers and my brother, whose support for his alma mater clearly gave them the boost they needed to become national champions right. last night. Good job, Tigers! Go Tigers! Good job. Love you, John. Woo! Let's see if he. Let's see if he's watching this. <laughs> I'm glad on anyone dunking on Alabama right now. And honestly, yeah. I'm glad that someone is doing well because I myself have been murdered by. A bunch of puppets. The official <laughs> Sesame Street account tweeted this clip yesterday of Cookie Monster trying to negotiate the benefits of his new job as a journalist. Take a look. Oh, and retirement package. Yeah. Uh, okay. <clears throat> well, give me a cookie. Sold. Me take it. Me journalist. Damn it. To be fair, in Cookie Monster's universe, a cookie is a valuable currency. That's true, but he j he wanted health care. He wanted benefits. He wanted, like, a retirement package. And he caved for a cookie, man. This really seems to be, like, hurting a lot of people on their core and the timeline right now. So many. And I can't tell if just because journalists are very sensitive about perceived slights against our, you know, noble industry. A little bit. But also, um, I feel personally dragged. Myself, me. Why would you do the Sesame World? workshop. Why? <laughs> I had no idea that they, I didn't, I knew that like Pixar has this like, oh, we're also for adults, but I haven't watched Sesame Street since I was, you know, three. So mm -hmm. I didn't know that they had all these little Easter eggs for adults in oh their gosh. content. I worked for a PBS station in college and yes, sometimes just sitting there, I would see Sesame Street. It's like, oh wow, they're going in uh, with their pop cultural references and everything that the children do not get. Uh, so Speaking of journalism jobs, though, how was your first gig? Did it? Did you relate at all to that? I mean, so I went to college in the middle of the recession, as many of us in our age bracket did. Amen. You, Shout you out. as well. <laughs> and I also was in journalism school in a time where there really there was no answer yet for what journalism was going to mean in the age of the internet. It was mostly just old, you know, old like respected, mm -hmm. established publications putting out internet websites and all that kind of stuff and there was no like buzzfeed yet so there was no answer to the question of what was going to happen mm -hmm. in the digital age who was going to be the next you know big news thing so basically all of my professors constantly told us that you know our industry was dying mm -hmm. why are you in this one of my professors told us that a colleague of hers who has been laid off said you're training the enemy meaning wow. us the students um, so they also told us constantly that we should aim for anything above the poverty line in terms of salary. Yikers. And so when I got my first salary, which was not, you know, a lot of money by any means, but you know, it had I had some benefits. I, you mm -hmm. know, I had I had a decent amount of money. Right. I, I thought I was like living on Easy Street. Right. Well, shout out to all the Cookies Monster out there who are feeling deeply wounded by Sesame Street today. Did you just say Cookies Monster? I did. That's the plural now, officially. Hey, I'm you're calling so smart. <laughs> Look oh, at God. this guy. How, how do I even compete? Okay, let's take it to the timeline. What is the most accurate drag you've ever received about your job? Mm -hmm. Let us know using the hashtag am to dm Please do. All right, guys. President I'm Trump. I'm trying to do it. Does it work? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just tagging okay. you from the real news. From the real news. It's fine. <laughs> President Trump is digging in his heels, taking his fight for a border wall to the people. Tonight, he's giving a primetime address on all of the major networks, and Thursday, he's scheduled to visit the border. 
But here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. The House Judiciary Committee chairman bluntly warned Trump against declaring a national emergency along the southern border and vowed to use Congress to challenge any such effort. Well, joining us now from the southern border to talk about this is BuzzFeed News reporter John Stanton. Hey, John. Hello, guys. Hey, so the president is said to be considering declaring a national emergency on the border. How's it looking down there? Uh, not very emergency right now, to be honest. <laughs> uh, um, there is obviously there is a, a humanitarian crisis, I think, going on on the border, but certainly nothing along the lines that the president has been attempting to, to paint it as with the uh, national security problems of, you know, thousands of people armed to the teeth or something coming across the border to rape and pillage America. It's, that's just not what's happening. It's not what's been happening in the border forever. Um, but there is definitely a humanitarian crisis, I think largely caused in part by, um, by the president's policies of shutting down the ability of people to cross the borders um, <clears throat> at points of entry and other sort of official places to ask for asylum. They're, they're starting to um, stack up in places like Juarez here uh, and then move into more dangerous parts of the border. So that's a problem that is going on. Yeah, so you actually went on a tour of a Customs and Border Patrol facility and were able to speak to people face-to-face -face who are dealing with this so-called crisis every single day. So what did these people have to say about what this crisis is or what Trump may talk about? Well, they, so they actually don't, don't let us into the facilities, uh, generally speaking, because they don't like having reporters in. Um, but we have talked quite a bit with folks from the Annunciation House and from another number of other groups that are sort of dealing with this day to day. And they've all basically said that, you know, they, the biggest problem that they have right now is this slowdown of the asylum process. It's creating these, these huge lines and bottlenecks. And when they do get through the process of coming into the country, um, it often will ultimately overwhelm a lot of the aid groups on the United States side of the border and their ability to provide housing and food and medical care. And they combine that with the fact that the Border Patrol is simply unprepared for, for dealing with families that are coming across the border and giving them the kind of health care that they need. Uh, you know, you end up seeing um, children dying in U.S. custody, which is pretty unheard of. I know you've said there's a lot of bottlenecks, a lot of people like waiting, but how effective would you say the president and his administration's policies have been so far in actually stopping people from trying to cross the border? Um, that's a difficult question to, to answer, honestly, because it's it's very hard to tell how many people are crossing the border. One of the ways that the Border Patrol used, uh, uh, is able to track the number of crossers that cross irregularly, like not at a point of entry, is they, they literally make a they take tires big giant tractor tires and they drag them through the desert uh, at night in the afternoon and in the morning they come and they count the number of footsteps in that little part of the desert and they sort of extrapolate out from that so it's a little tough to tell uh, but I think what it's done is is not stop people from attempting to cross what it is doing is it's making them cross in very very dangerous parts of the border uh, in terms of places that are either controlled by cartels on the Mexican side or are just, uh, in terms of terrain, extraordinarily dangerous, very, very remote, and um, it makes it so people are, are, are dying and getting hurt out of the desert. So, obviously, the big thing that Trump, we're going to guess, is going to talk about tonight, the thing that we can't stop hearing about is the wall, the great big beautiful wall, right? Do you have any sense of what the people who actually live down there think about the proposed wall? 
Yeah, you know, I think that there are sort of two kinds of, of people on the border. Most of the folks that you talk to generally um, either don't like the idea of a, of a giant wall or are kind of agnostic to it. They're kind of used to seeing it. I mean, in places like Juarez and El Paso, uh, which are just split by the wall, you know, the, the wall's been there now for 20 years, 30 years. And so, like, for them, this fence or wall or whatever you want to call it is, is just part of life. And so... It doesn't really mean much to them. Um, there are those that, that definitely like it, uh, particularly some private property owners who feel like it helps protect some of their property from people that are crossing through um, undocumented. But I think most folks are either, you know, we don't really need this, this is not the way to do this, or kind of agnostic on the whole thing, don't think it's going to affect anything one way or the other. So you've been down there. You spoke with Democrats yesterday for your story. You've been hearing from a lot of people. My question is, um, given that Trump is giving this big speech tonight, pushing for this national security crisis, maybe using funding to uh, build the wall, uh, what do you think? What effect do you think this will have on the shutdown? Considering all of this is actually what's at the core of why we don't have a functioning government at the moment. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great question. And people have actually, that's the one thing I think a lot of people around here have asked me um, in the last couple of days. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I think that the, depending on what he says and what he does, um, it could harden positions on both sides and drag the, the shutdown out, out much longer. I don't think it's going to make any of the Democrats certainly decide to suddenly support the president and give him what he wants. You know, I think that there are Republicans like Will Hurd, uh, who have already said they don't like the idea of the border wall. And I think that they could become much more vocal after this address, particularly if it kind of goes off the rails into some race, racist kind of language or, or anything like that. I think that you could see them start to say, listen, we got to stop this now. Let's just get past this because it's now been weeks and weeks and weeks of, of distraction and um, causing us problems. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, John. That was a really fascinating update. Thank you. Well, here's a tweet from former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. Justice has finally been served. Centoya Brown has been granted clemency. This victory belongs to Centoya Brown and to the Tennessee human tra trafficking activists, especially black women, who refused to concede injustice and instead organized to create change. BuzzFeed News reporter Mary Ann Georgentopoulos is here with the latest on that case that captured national attention. Good morning. Good morning, guys. So, Mary Ann, for anyone who may be unfamiliar, can you give us the backstory on Centoya? Sure. So, uh, when Centoya was 16 years old, so back in 2004, uh, she she ran away from home, and you know she had kind of a, according to court documents, had a history of like her mother abused alcohol and drugs. So, she. She left home and was uh, forced into prostitution, and she ended up killing one of her one of the men that bought her for sex. He was a forty three year old man uh, by the name of Johnny Allen, and she shot him in his sleep. And she claimed that she feared for her life because she saw that he had a gun and was afraid that he was going to kill her. So she um, she ended up shooting him in his sleep and then fled. Uh, fearing for her life. And she was eventually arrested. She was tried as an adult and convicted of first degree murder. And then just last month, um, the Tennessee Supreme Court 
uh, ruled that she would have to spend at least 51 years in prison. So considering the Supreme Court's, uh, the Tennessee Supreme Court's decision, what made her, the governor granted her clemency. So what made him decide that to do that now? So it's interesting. The Tennessee governor's term is ending on January 19th, so just in about 10 days. And lawmakers have been urging him, especially um, like as recently as last week, to grant her clemency. And yesterday he did so. He put out a statement calling the case you know, tragic and complex and just said that the punishment was too, uh, quote, too harsh, especially in light of the steps she has taken in prison to rehabilitate herself. Yeah, I want to highlight a tweet from Jessica Bliss of The Tennessean who wrote Centoya Brown on her clemency, and now she's quoting Centoya. I am thankful for all the support, prayers, and encouragement I have received. We truly serve a God of second chances and new beginnings. Let today be a testament to his saving grace. So Centoya's case became this huge cause celebrity for so many people, so many celebrities, Kim Kardashian, Rihanna, people, I saw so many people on social media sharing how happy they were that she was granted clemency yesterday. Why do you think this woman's story resonated with so many people? You know, I think it was kind of, it highlighted a little bit or reflected the, the need for uh, criminal justice reform that many people believed in, that, you know, she was a victim of, like a sex trafficking victim and still was charged as an adult when she was only 16 years old and, you know, fearing for her life faced such a... Um, such a harsh punishment. And um, I think, yeah, kind of like the, the tweet that you just quoted, um, people wanted her to have like a second chance. You know, she was doing really well um, in prison. She's been in prison for 15 years now. And she, in that time, she's received her high school diploma, an associate's degree uh, with like a 4.0 GPA. She's on track to receive her bachelor's degree by the, uh, I believe by this summer. So she's, made steps to better herself and to uh, continue to grow. What, I guess, if anything, do you think this says about, you know, social media in this day and age, considering, you know, how much of uh, the reason why she was granted this clemency was because of the attention that was pushed on Twitter and on Instagram? Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of people heard about her case who maybe otherwise would not have heard about it, you know, given that celebrities such as Kim Kardashian West and Rihanna have been tweeting about it and they, you know, as everyone knows, have a crazy following on social media, on their Twitter and Instagrams. So I think they, they're, uh, them speaking out about uh, Centoya's case brought it to the attention of maybe a lot of people who wouldn't have heard about it. And, um, and then they, they also got interested, became interested and wanted to hear more and learn more. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marianne, for covering this really important story. Thank you, guys. Later in the show, I'm really excited to talk about a big issue that barely ever gets discussed, abuse by debt. It's a fascinating conversation. I think you guys should stick around for it. But up next is Fire Tweets. Yeah. Fire! Fire! Welcome okay. back, guys. Hope we wanted to see who... Uh, who had experienced things that they had been dragged about by their bosses or by their job or anything, really. The, the, the tweet is open. Tweet whatever you want mm -hmm. where you've been dragged by your 
workplace. And Festive, she wrote, I work in IT, the job drags itself, TBH. Yikes. Justice for IT. Justice for IT. IT people are great. You keep us, you know, functioning, so thanks. Shout out to all the IT people out there. And our IT people here at BuzzFeed made adorable little elves of themselves and <laughs> hung it all around their workstation, which I just really appreciated as something that was adorable. So. I love IT. All right, ready for some fire tweets? Yep. All right, let's get into this. Here we go. Ugh. Sean tweeted, I hate thinking I found a parking spot and happily go to pull into it, and there it is, a Kia Soul. I don't know if I've ever seen a Kia Soul. They're what does it look like? Small, small-ish, like a leprechaun drives it, really. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if anyone out there drives a Kia Soul. I'm sure very uh, Are you a leprechaun? <laughs> Tweet us. Why <laughs> All right, this is from Anne. My grandmother has a new friend at her retirement community. He takes her shopping and to get her hair and nails done. She told me that his wife doesn't mind because she has Alzheimer's. Ma'am? Yikes, that is ridiculously so messy. So my big question for Anne is, does the grandmother like this gentleman or is she just finessing hair and makeup and whatever out of him? Scammer Graham, scammer Graham. I mean, honestly, who knows? Like once you're in the old folks home, anything goes. You can just do whatever you want. I'm gonna be scamming away. Bingo, hustle, you name it. Okay, Kay, you tweeted. My niece said, I don't wanna grow up. I said, why not? Aren't you tired of following your mom's rules? She said, I don't even follow them rules. Dang. I think that her sister needs to get a hold on the niece. <laughs> Pulling them reins a little bit. My mom would have killed me. All right, Laura. Some of you were never the third friend that had to walk behind when the sidewalk was too narrow and it shows. Oof. Were we two third friends? I think I was a third friend. I was definitely a third friend. Three across is too much of a power move for me, so I definitely was like, I'll be courteous hey and sit behind. Okay. Oh, hey, you guys forgot to invite me. It's okay, I'll come. <laughs> That's what I say to AM to DM every day, and I just show up here and they let me here. Brandy tweeted, The fundamental problem I have with movies about surviving the apocalypse is that I do not relate at all to the desire to survive the apocalypse. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people tweet that if the apocalypse comes, mm -hmm. they don't want to survive. They don't want to deal with like the drama of having I mean, to, like I can't say forage I, or whatever. I can't say I blame them. My girlfriend, when we first started dating, our first one of our first fights was about the fact that uh, she would not let me be on her zombie team in the zombie apocalypse. And at first, I was really hurt, but then I thought, Nah, that's fair. I drag you down. Go live. Did you guys actually get into a fight? Oh, we actually that's had. That's so funny. Yeah, it's real. Long-term relationships are hilarious. Okay, you ready for the two of the day? I'm set. Let's do this. This is from John Darby. Horse. Oh, this these pants fit me perfectly. Sales clerk. Very good, sir. Horse. Quiet. Uh, I'll need two pairs. Of course. <laughs> Bergdorf Goodman. Bergdorf Goodman. Extremely good service. That took me a little bit to get, but then after I got it, it made me laugh really hard. I don't know. Is that just something that no, I, no. Thought was, you I thought was funny? I love that. Okay, let so us know much. if you guys thought that was funny because I thought it was really funny. Like it's just funny that like the horse is embarrassed that he needs two pairs of pants. I mean, wouldn't you be? Maybe if you were a horse man. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, coming up, Stephanie talks about dead abuse with BuzzFeed reporter Ariane Lange. But next up, we are going live from the district. Stick around. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News, Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. 
Good morning. All right, Emma, here's a tweet from Jake Tapper. If the partial federal government shutdown continues past Friday, it'll become the longest one in U.S. history. Emma, if you were a betting person, if you're going to cross the river over into Windsor again, would you bet on that happening? <laughs> I would not bet on that. I, I would bet on that happening because I don't think the end of this shutdown is anywhere in sight. People are digging in their heels. Trump is insisting on this $5.7 billion for the border wall. Democrats say this is not the time to be discussing border security. It's time to reopen the government fully. And there doesn't really seem to be any progress being made in the negotiations. And now Trump is going to make this address tonight where he's going to talk about border security and try to get more people on his side with this and try to put pressure on Democrats. But Democrats are digging in as well. Uh, Democrats in the Senate are refusing to vote on any legislation that isn't legislation to reopen the government. And I think that as we see more, uh, you know, stories about furloughed uh, shutdown uh, employees that from the shutdown, uh, people who are potentially Trump supporters, you know, there are federal government employees all over this country. People coming out and saying, you know, this isn't worth it, which we've already seen a bit of. I think there's going to be even more pressure on the White House to concede. Do you think that there's anything coming up? I know people were talking on Twitter this morning about the first paycheck or first missed paycheck in this case. Over the next few weeks, that could make both sides be like, we have to go to agreement. Or do you really think this is something that they're both just going to let lapse forever and ever and ever? Well, I think that as soon as people start missing their paychecks, that's when it becomes real. And that's when they're going to be starting to get vocal. And that's when the pressure is going to increase on all parties to come to some sort of resolution. Yeah, I mean, you would think so. We would hope. But let's move on to a different story of more fun. Here's a tweet from our own Zoe Tillman. Knock it off. A judge had harsh words today for a defense lawyer in Mueller's Russian troll farm case who in recent months has lobbied colorful verbal attacks at the special counsel's office via court filings. Okay, Emma, for those of us who haven't kept up on this particular case, there's a lot of them that Zoe has been covering. Can you give us the basics on this one? Yeah, so it's rare that you see a story about the Mueller investigation that actually kind of makes you laugh, and this is one of them. So the lawyer in this case, representing a company that was charged as part of this Russian troll farm indictment, um, has been making very colorful attacks on Mueller's team. He's been uh, in court filings quoting from Animal House, um, which is kind of funny, and also, um, you know, quoting Tweety Bird in court filings, uh, making all sorts of colorful attacks against Mueller's team. So the judge had finally had enough, said, knock it off, and said that this is not going to make you look good in my courtroom, so you better stop doing it. Wait, 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 wait. You said Tweety Bird, like <laughs> the Looney Tunes character versus Sylvester the Cat Tweety Bird quoted in a court filing. Is that is this correct? Is the 90s? Like, what is, wait, what correct. did he say? That what is correct. Was, what was the quote? Do you remember? I think it was the, I, I, I don't remember. It was something, I, I, I honestly don't remember what the quote was, but it was, it was written in the language of, of Tweety Bird as well. Like, you know, the words were written as he would say them. Wait, wait, so, so it was pretty funny. So I, if I remember it correctly, it's, I thought I saw a putty tax. Yeah, that, that is, that is what is that I was trying to remember Is that officially a part of the Russian investigation now? Wow. I thought I saw a putty tat. It is. Tat. Great. 2019, awesome. man. Okay, so why is this lawyer doing this? Is he just trying to troll? I mean, troll, I guess he's, you know, that's the theme of the case, or is he trying to get attention, or 
Well, why? 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 <laughs> I think that's a great question, and I do think he's trying to get attention here, trying to get some some favorable press coverage, maybe from those who are critical of the Mueller investigation, um, because you know there were references to fake news and you know kind of these keywords of 2018, and so I do think he was trying to get attention, uh, but it's just, it just hasn't really worked for him. <laughs> All right. So what's the? Do you know what the next step in this case really is? I think they have another um, court date in, in early March. Well, we're going to be paying close attention between now and then to see if we get any more ridiculous filings. Thank you so much, Emma, for joining us. Thanks, Hayes. Okay, up next, we are staying in the district, and we are staying with Emma's. Emma O'Connor is interviewing the new head of Planned Parenthood up next. Hi, my name is Emma O'Connor. I'm the reproductive policy reporter with BuzzFeed News. I'm here with Dr. Lena Wen, the new president of Planned Parenthood who just started in the fall. Hi, Lena, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you for having me here, and I'm glad to be able to come to provide clarification to an article that you published this morning, mm -hmm. and specifically the clarification that the fight for reproductive health and rights is truly the fight of our time. I mean, with the Supreme Court, we're facing a situation where 25 million women, which is one in three women of reproductive age in this country, could be living in states where abortion is banned outlawed and criminalized. Mm. This is about patients' lives, and Planned Parenthood for over 100 years has fought to protect access to reproductive health care, including the right to safe legal abortions. We will not back down. We will do everything we can to fight in the courts, to fight by electing pro-reproductive health, pro-women's health champions. That's what we're committed to. We are here to provide care no matter what. Great. Yeah, actually, that, that leads into my, my first question really well, which is, uh, Planned Parenthood has been a flashpoint politically for the past eight years. So how will you be able to kind of move, move away from that and address that further if you could go into a little more detail? Well, healthcare shouldn't be political. Getting medications for your children, vaccinations, getting STI checks, breast and cervical cancer screenings, that's healthcare. I know that as a doctor. This is about people's lives that's at stake when we restrict people's access to healthcare. But unfortunately, healthcare has become political because there are so many people who are restricting access to care. In the last seven years, there have been over 400 laws passed that directly restrict abortion access. And I know what's at stake. It's about women's lives. Mm -hmm. And that's why for me, it's about two things. It's about first providing care and doing everything we can to provide services to people where they are. But we just as much have to fight to protect access to that care. Those two parts go hand in hand, because really, we need to be standing up for how reproductive health care, including abortions, is part of the full spectrum of health care. Mm -hmm. And health care is a human right. So you just became president of Planned Parenthood in the fall and mid-November. How will your leadership different from your predecessor, Cecile Richards? It's not different, mm -hmm. because Planned Parenthood for over 100 years has been about providing health care and equally fighting back with everything we have to protect access to that care. Abortion is a standard medical procedure. Mm -hmm. It's something that one in four women in the U.S. will have in our lifetimes. And yet, what other medical procedure is restricted in the same way that abortion is? Mm -hmm. What other medical procedure have there been hundreds of laws passed that there are daily attacks 
to prevent people from accessing what's standard medical care. So I'm here to say the same thing that my predecessors and all of us here at Planned Parenthood have said, have fought for, mm-hmm. which is that reproductive health care is health care. Women's health care is health care. And we have to double down and fight with everything we have because it's about people's lives. Yeah. So before this job, you were Baltimore Health Commissioner since 2015. Um, you did a lot of really groundbreaking work with them. Um, how does your experience there help contribute to this new role and help contribute to the fight? When I was the health commissioner in Baltimore, we achieved some record successes in public health, including reducing infant mortality in our city by almost 40%, cutting the disparity between black and white infant mortality by over 50%, reducing the teen birth rates by 61%. And yet, the Trump administration cut our teen pregnancy prevention program just as it was cut around the country. Mm. So we in Baltimore sued the Trump administration and we won restoring funding to 10,000 of our youths so that they can get comprehensive sex education. It's that same spirit of providing care, but then recognizing that we would not be doing everything we can unless we fought to protect access to that care, and that we're fighting for science, we're fighting for for what is right that I'll be doing in this role too. And similarly, we are doubling down now on fighting to protect Title X, mm. which is uh, the national program to, afford, uh, to, to provide affordable birth control to low-income women and families. Any day now, we expect that the Trump administration will be cutting this program and preventing four million people from having access to reproductive health. We'll be fighting against this. We'll be fighting against so many of these other horrible restrictions that are coming out on a daily basis. Yeah, so related to that, um, you have a friendly Congress now, or at least in the House. It's majority Democrats. There's a lot of new members who are very pro-Planned Parenthood, and that was part of their campaigns. And I know you mentioned to me that you've spoken with a lot of them about kind of fighting going forward and working together. Um, However, in the past, a lot of uh, abortion funding and funding for Planned Parenthood specifically has held up legislation because of Republican opposition. And as you just mentioned, Trump is also on, on that side. So do you still feel concerned that there's a threat to defund Planned Parenthood and defund abortion care in general? Well, I first want to say that I'm so happy to be working with these newly elected champions, these strong pro-reproductive health, pro-women's health champions in the House of Representatives who are a wall against defunding efforts. They are a firewall to protect Planned Parenthood, to protect the millions of people that we serve every year. I mean, I was a patient of Planned Parenthood. My mother and my sister were patients of Planned Parenthood. So are, so have one in five women in America been patients of Planned Parenthood. This is really about people's lives, and I'm thrilled to be working with our champions. And I think that also illustrates why it's so important for us to be electing individuals as our leaders who protect choice, who protect access, who protect the fundamental right to health care. Mm-hmm. And that's why we'll be fighting back in every way. We will be looking to 2020 to elect even more champions and working on the state level as well, which is so critical. Mm-hmm. In this last cycle, we have elected now 25 pro-reproductive health governors, 19 legislatures, including D.C., that are pro-reproductive health, pro-women's health. And we'll be looking to the states, too, because the states are a critical backstop that will allow us to repeal these terrible laws that restrict abortion access and allow us to push back and expand access and expand health care and expand the fundamental right 
to safe legal abortions and the full spectrum of reproductive health care. So do you think that the, the funding fight is still one that is a concern, or do you think it's kind of moving on to the, the other concerns that you mentioned, that those ones, because of the way that Congresses now have taken kind of more priority um, for Republicans? Well, look, Planned Parenthood and more generally abortion access and reproductive health care are under attack every single day. We see restrictions being passed that are so onerous and so horrific that it's almost difficult to talk about. I mean, Iowa passed a ban on abortions at six weeks when most women don't even know that they're pregnant. I mean, these types of things are happening all the time in states around the country. And that's why we need to be fighting on every level. We need to be fighting in the courts. We need to be fighting in the states to both repeal these restrictions as well as protect and expand abortion and reproductive health access. And we have to be fighting in Congress. We have to be working with our new champions as well as working with our longtime allies in order to fight against this Trump-Pence administration and all these horrific restrictions that are coming out, too. I mean, less than 24 hours after the American people rose up and elected a pro-reproductive health majority in, in, in the House of Representatives, the Trump administration passed a rule that or finalized their rule that would allow employers to deny women birth control coverage. I mean, what year is this and we're still debating birth control? Title 10 restrictions coming out any day, denying 4 million people affordable birth control. That's what's at stake. And that's why Planned Parenthood's role will be to expand our influence, expand our impact, expand our care, expand our advocacy, expand our political power, because we have to. It's about patients' lives. Uh, so you're about to go on a clinic tour of, I think you said, 20 clinics in five months around the country, Planned Parenthood clinics. Um, is, is That's connected to your uh, the This Is Healthcare campaign. Is that, is that correct? Tomorrow, yes. I'm about to launch a national listening tour to mm -hmm. our 20 to 20 affiliates. We have 55 affiliates around the country that provide care. And I'll be visiting 20 of our affiliates. We have over 600 health centers. Um, and I'll be doing that over the next five months. And I'll be highlighting the work that our affiliates do around the country to center on sexual and reproductive health care and to provide for the whole woman, for the whole person. Because that's what we've been, that's what we're all about. We know that the patients who come to us don't just have one need, that reproductive health care is part of the many issues that they may be, that they may be coming with us to. So we are across the country, our 600 health centers are proud to provide services like STI screenings, cancer screenings, HIV linkage to care, well women exams, trans care, um, and so many other services. And I'm excited to visit with our affiliates, learn more about their innovative work, and how being pro-women, pro-reproductive health care is being pro-family and being pro-community. Mm -hmm. And many of our health centers, many of our affiliates deliver care in extremely challenging political environments. And I'm excited to look to see how they thrive and also how our advocates on the ground fight back in their states against these onerous re restrictions mm -hmm. and still provide care no matter what. So you mentioned that um, among the other services, you're looking to expand, potentially expand mental health care and opioid addiction treatment in uh, Planned Parenthood affiliates around the country. Could you talk a little bit more about that? We know that there is huge unmet need when it comes to health care. When we did a survey of our patients, we found that the number one unmet need that they identified is mental health. 
this is something that we across the country just do a terrible job of when, in fact, mental health is just as important as physical health. And so we'll be looking to expand all of our services, expanding abortion access, because that's also a huge unmet need, expanding sexual and reproductive health, our core services. But we're also looking at expansion of care overall, because we know that there is huge unmet need. I mean, we look at maternal mortality as an indicator we know that the rate of maternal mortality, the rate of women dying in childbirth, is higher today than it was in 1990 in the U.S. An African-American woman is almost four times more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman, 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. There's huge unmet need, and Planned Parenthood has always been about stepping up to meet these needs in communities, to provide the care, because for so many of our patients, we are their only source of health care. And it's our obligation to provide care to everyone, while at the same time fighting with everything we have, because we can't literally provide the care if there are laws that prevent us from doing so. And we as a country need to step up and recognize that health care is a human right that must be guaranteed to all. And abortion and reproductive health care are part of that full spectrum of health care. It cannot be a privilege that only the wealthy, the privileged are able to get to. Health care must be a right for all. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wen. And we have more AM to DM up next. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. A woman's husband secretly racked up $19,000 worth of debt in her name. In most states, her situation is not considered fraud. Well, this story really surprised and angered me when I read it yesterday. And I'm so excited to have BuzzFeed News national reporter Ariane Lang, who wrote this story here with me to discuss it. Hey, Ariane. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, so you spoke to a woman named Cheryl, and she discovered that her husband had thousands of dollars of credit card debt in her name when she was trying to divorce him. Can you talk a little bit about her story? Yeah, so Cheryl um, was finally getting divorced from her husband after going on 10 years together, and she had ordered her credit report. She sort of wanted to look at her credit score because she starting a new life without him and wanted to transfer from community college to a four-year university and needed student loans. And so she opened up her credit report and found thousands of dollars of debt in her name. Uh, and that became her focus for quite a while after that. Yeah. And it was because her husband had controlled a lot of their money and she just didn't know that he was going out and creating all of these credit cards in her name. Well, according to your story, since the 1980s, scholars have repeatedly found that women stay in abusive relationships longer because they cannot afford the cost of leaving. They've also found that abusers use money to control their partners. So obviously putting someone in debt is a way to control someone, but what are some other ways that abusive people control their significant others through money? So it takes money to leave an abusive partner, right? Um, you need to feed yourself, your kids if you have them, you may need a new, you probably need a new apartment, housing. Um, and so if, uh, if your partner is forcing you to put all your money in an account that he controls, that could be one way that he controls you. Um, he could stop you from working, sabotage your job, um, or in some cases force you to take out credit card debt or sign a loan. Um, and the damage to your credit score could also affect your ability to leave the relationship. 
Yeah, I thought your piece was so interesting because I never thought of debt and financial problems as a way to abuse someone. Obviously, we hear about emotional abuse, we hear about physical abuse, but we don't really talk about the financial aspect of abusive relationships. Why do you think that is? So there are a lot of reasons, but um, you know, the most obvious one is probably that physical abuse is more what we can see. You know, we see a black eye or whatever, but. Um, Another big reason is that when people are fleeing these violent relationships, usually what they are primarily focused on in the immediate uh, aftermath of leaving is their physical safety. And so that can be overemphasized. Uh, that initial contact with service providers sort of overemphasizes physical safety or not overemphasizes. It is important, obviously. But, um, but then it continues to get overemphasized throughout uh, society, really. Uh, you talked to Cheryl's lawyer who told you that they've, she's never seen someone prosecuted for identity theft through uh, abuse of debt. So like she's never seen a husband been charged with anything for opening a bunch of credit cards or loans in her his wife's name and then you know, leaving her to deal with the consequences. And that was really, really surprising to me and kind of made me really mad. Like there should be some <laughs> consequences for anyone opening debt in someone else's name. Why do you think these cases are not being prosecuted? Yeah, that was surprising to me too. Um, so a lot of identity theft cases aren't, uh, not a ton of them are not prosecuted in the first place, but it's also sort of complicated uh, when two people were financially entangled to begin with. And the law is also not super clear that this is identity theft necessarily uh, when it happens between two people who were married in particular. And so one thing that consumer law lawyers told me is that an easy fix, it might not lead to more criminal prosecution, but it would help women uh, like Cheryl, people who are experiencing this to seek help or to get their credit score or credit report fixed is lawmakers could expand the definition of identity theft to include a clear definition of consent. So if you didn't consent to these charges, then that is identity theft. That isn't present in almost any state laws currently. I think it's only three states that have some version of that. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about this issue, but we got to end it here. Thank you so much, Ariane. Thank you. And be sure to read her piece. It's very interesting. And all of the pieces in BuzzFeed Readers, what we owe series that are coming out this week, it's all about debt and what people's experiences with debt are. And it's very, very interesting. Well, up next, Charlie Warzel talks to us about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is using social media to drive the agenda on Capitol Hill. BuzzFeed News senior tech writer Charlie Warzel tweeted this about the congresswoman who has everyone talking. I wrote about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uses Instagram and Twitter and how her prowess with the internet to send agendas is scrambling the minds of the least savvy pro-Trump media pundits. What a sentence. Charlie joins us now. How you doing? Hi, Liking Charlie. the beard, Charlie. Yeah, you were really like going for Really leaning into that Montana. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, it's very cold here, so <laughs> this is a necessity beard. Solid face shield you got there. 
So you write that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the pro-Trump media use the same playbook. What playbook is that, would you say? So it's really, uh, I mean, if you want to boil it down to its essence, it means being good at social media, being good at the internet. Um, but if you, know, if you want to sort of uh, be a little more uh, specific about it, it, it's this idea that, that sort of modern politics seems to uh, be about finding ways to uh, simultaneously connect all the time with your audience, like constantly be creating content and, uh, and engaging in that way while also parrying attacks, getting down in the dirt, you know, in the timeline, arguing in threads, dunking on people, uh, and, and using social media to program like the broader legacy media to sort of set the agenda for things like cable news so that you, you and your agenda are sort of always on the forefront. It's very interesting to me that a lot of people are saying that AOC is very good at social media because from my perspective, she kind of just seems to be doing what anyone in my generation would do if they were elected to Congress. Like, it doesn't seem to me like she is especially good. She's just kind of, this is her generation. She's used to it. Do you think, do you think that's true? Do you, th and do you think that there's a way for maybe people who didn't grow up the, with the internet to mimic this style, say older politicians? I, I don't think that anyone, I mean, should ever, as a politician, should try to mimic any stuff. Like, I think <laughs> that you know we've always known that authenticity is like is the core uh thing for someone you know to they need to be themselves on on social media especially as a politician but i i would i would completely agree with you like i don't think that that this is necessarily um you know that that she is uh like a particular genius at this stuff she's just really good at uh, harnessing you know, uh, her, her generational stance. And I, and I say in the piece that she, she uses it, you know, as a weapon. Um, and, and I think it's really similar actually to the way that the, uh, the Parkland teens sort of, uh, last February used social media to, you know, silence all their critics and to sort of try to set the agenda about gun violence in schools and gun violence in general. It was, it, it's this sort of, understanding that you're born onto the internet and like information warfare is, you know, like in your blood, like it's part of your DNA. Charlie, you flagged this tweet from men's rights figure, Mike Cernovich, who I'm pretty sure it's safe to say he's not a fan of AOC. He said, she's already, she already has people talking about a tax rate. 70% was her opening bid. As Scott Adams would say, she owns the conversation now. Everyone's talking about AOC's tax plan, and she's 29 and got sworn in a day ago. La la la, do people even understand this at all? Now, Charlie, will her online presence actually turn into real policies? So um, that is obviously like what remains to be seen. You know, she was sworn in less than a week ago. Um, and, but I, you know, I do think that the what we see with you know the way that she's championed a Green New Deal and the way that that's sort of become a like a political litmus test for presidential hopefuls on the you know on the Democratic side. I think that that's really interesting. It shows that there is, you know, I think I think that President Trump and his whole media apparatus have really shown over the past, let's say, three years now, that being able to use the internet to sort of program the media to have the conversation and to sort of be out in front and set that agenda has has proved to be sort of like the closest thing to to power these days. Um, I mean, you just look at who's in the White House, and so. You know, 
I don't, I don't know whether this will translate. And I, and I certainly don't, you know, mean to conflate the idea that if you're really good at, you know, dunking at people, people on Twitter or good at Instagram stories that, you know, that you should be, uh, you know, a legislator. But I, I do think that the tweet that you uh, just read from, from Mike Cernovich, a member of the pro-Trump media, really shows that, you know, people who, people on the other side are looking at her and, and sort of scratching their heads and are sort of begrudgingly, you know, understanding that, that, that she's really good at this. Yeah, so this strategy seems to have worked for Trump and the pro-Trump media in the past, but do you think there's any disadvantages to her and her role as a sitting congresswoman? I know I feel like a lot of people online are kind of maybe dismissing her for being young, and that's kind of something that's going to dog her no matter what happens. But do you think that there is any disadvantage, or is this just kind of how, as we start to take over, that politics is going to be? I think this is how politics is going to be. I think that, you know, I, I think we've learned over the past, you know, whatever, two years that, that, uh, like online information warfare is politics, uh, to some degree. And I know that sounds like a little bit exaggerated, but it truly is. It's about creating narratives. It's about persuasion. It's about, um, it, it's about, you know, setting an agenda and having people react to you instead of vice versa. And I think that that is something that, you know, people who've grown up with the internet, uh, you know, our generation and, and younger are, are innately good at. And I think that, uh, I think that this is going to sort of be a, a template for modern day politics going forward. All right. Well, thank you to you and your beer, Charlie, for joining us. Really appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Take care, guys. All right. Up next, actor Shirley Ralph is here. I get to talk with her. Stick around. <laughs> Welcome back, y'all. I am thrilled to be joined by Tony-nominated actress Cheryl Lee Ralph. She was part of the original cast of Dreamgirls on Broadway, Dee Mitchell in Moesha, mm. and now she stars in the new CBS show, Fam. Good morning. Mm. Good morning. And it is truly a good morning. It Even is. Even with the rain and the, the overcast, it's a good morning. We're making it work in New York City. Amen. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a quick look at Fam to get our audience uh, love it. in Clips. it. I'll say, you know what my favorite part about this dinner is? The carrots, kaboom! <laughs> All right, let's do this. Not a word until dinner. All right. Hey, hey guys. You two. We're getting married! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Great. I love the way that came together. That you was know. actually, that was some good time. That, that was some rhythm. very good time. So what is the family at the center of fam really like? Give us, uh, give us some hints. As real people or on TV? Let's go with on TV first. On TV? haven't seen the show yet. They're some crazy people. Mm. They are, uh, what do you say, functionally dysfunctional, mm -hmm. and but with love. It's the kind of family where you will see your family or somebody you know mm. in your family in this family. There's that person who loves you unconditionally. There's that person who loves you in spite of themselves. Mm. There is that person that you love in spite of themselves. And there's that person that you wonder, how do I love them at all? <laughs> there is all of that going on in this show and it just works. All right, that's great to hear. Thank so, you. Talking about 
off camera, uh -huh. you and your 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 character is Nina Dobrev's soon-to-be mother-in-law. Yes. What was it like on set with them? I've seen your Insta. I've seen like you chilling and hanging out with them. So what's it like with them? We had the greatest time. You know, it's interesting when you put a cast together. What you hope will happen is that they will gel. Gel. What you hope will happen is that they will like each other. What you hope will happen is that you will find chemistry with these people. Because mm -hmm. chemistry is really what can make a show work. Right. Beyond what's on the paper and everything, mm -hmm. it's that chemistry that they have as, as human beings. And we all just clicked. Good. And it was the strangest thing. We were like, we're all so very different, but we all just clicked. And it was, it was... It was great. Shout out to the casting director. Shout out to you guys. Shout out to everybody. Shout everybody. out to who made the phone call that said, Cheryl Lee Ralph, do you want to do this? And I was like, are you, are you just asking me? <laughs> or is it real? Uh, what? What? It was. And it, it was real. <laughs> First of all, who it came from, I didn't even have to worry about that. The mm. numbers would be right. So. Nice. Yeah, it was a good nice. choice to say yes. All right. So you were on Moesha back in the 90s. Yes. So what would you say has changed about the kind of stories that black people get to tell on television between Moesha and now? Oh, you know, right? it's, 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 it's interesting because what Moesha did mm -hmm. back in the day was they led the way because you had black stories being told by black people, mm -hmm. being written by black people, mm -hmm. being executed by black people. So it was really ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. Executive producer Ralph Farquhar, um, Sarah Finney, they were amazing at bringing women to the table and overall black women and mm -hmm. overall black people to the industry. Mara Brock Akeel was a PA on the show who went on to be a writer, and now you see that she's had quite success, right. quite great success with her shows. Mm -hmm. So it was really a birthplace for a lot of people who are now carrying on the tradition of telling their stories, writing their stories. Nice. So. I, I remember back in the day when UPN was the black, the Can urban network. I remember, remember UPN that? being like, okay, we got Moesha, we got girlfriends, we got everything just and on lock. And they right. dropped us. Yikes. Okay, yeah. shifting topics. We have to talk about your performance in Dreamgirls, your iconic performance as the original Dina. Aww. Did you give any advice to Beyonce when she played you in the movie version? Did you call her I didn't like, get it. I didn't get a chance to because they kept us apart. <gasps> they said so what was said to me, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I've been around long enough to actually remember what was said to me, and they said that it would be a distraction to have the two of us together. And Excuse I, you? Yeah, that's what, what I said. What, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So it just never happened. We never came together. But I want to tell you what did happen. I saw Bill. her mother, mm -hmm. Tina Lawson, yes. um, about two months ago. She was driving in her fabulous <laughs> car. I was like, whoa, the car pulled up and stopped on the street. Tina Lawson got out of the car. No. Yeah, um, this happened, cross my heart, hope to live, in L.A. on Melrose and La Cienega. Bless. And she said to me, Cheryl Lee Ralph, I just had to stop and tell you that you are wonderful. I love your work, and I'm looking forward to what you're going to be doing in the future. And I was like, Tina Lawson. <laughs> and, then ah! you was, and then you ascended to heaven, and I'm okay. glad you've come back down there you to go. have this conversation with How us. How about that? Have you ever caught up with Beyonce, though, or is it still waiting not, for the phone call? I am not caught up with Beyonce still, well, but I get to encourage and love what she's doing, so mm. that, that's great. That's the way. Nothing happens before it's time, you know. True. We may want certain things, but God has perfect timing. It'll happen at the right time, and I'll get paid, too. <laughs> yes! Yes! <laughs> so, Dreamgirls is still such a powerful story about it what really it's like is. inside the recording industry and how it handles the power dynamics especially. Yes. How much did that resonate with your experience going forward? 
God did it ever. Mm. You know, there's a there's a very small line in the show where something there's a bit of turmoil, and at the end, they sing, "It's just showbiz, mm -hmm. showbiz, just a showbiz, showbiz, just a showbiz," and to this day, things happen, and I say to myself, "That's showbiz, That's baby." Showbiz. That show so, is. You're not just a diva in Dream Girls, but in real life, you have your own foundation called Diva, which raises awareness yes. about HIV AIDS. Yes. Why choose that as a cause close to your heart? What oh my the, goodness. What was the reasoning behind Dream that? Dream Girls. Mm. You know, you have to go back to the 80s. 1981, you could be dancing singing and dancing with somebody one night. The next night, they'd be fighting for their life. Woof. And yeah. I saw my friends suffer and die. I saw people who claimed to be their friends turn their backs on them and leave them. I saw people go to the hospital mm -hmm. who were in the shape that they just needed somebody to come in and hold their hand and there was nobody for them mm -hmm. or they would be pushed out in a hallway with no no bed for them with a sign at the foot of the bed Ooh, i get riled up when i talk about this because the, uh, the the little girl the young woman in me still mm -hmm. sees the injustice to people and being a child of the 60s mm -hmm. you know the way people used to bully you you couldn't go out to go couldn't go to school in the 60s with no, that would be relaxed as hell right oh, now oh my god you had to press up you had, had to be fried dyed mm -hmm. and laid to the side mm -hmm. you know you were not free to be yourself and then when my friends were sick and dying and they'd have that sign at the foot of the bed that said do not touch Ugh. that was hell mm -hmm. so I said you know what people help me with my wig weave weft and wardrobe problems <laughs> so I'm remembering them mm. so every year divas is like a living breathing singing memorial to all of my friends who suffered and died with nobody to love them or respect them and remember them in the way they should be remembered so we do it every year mm -hmm. and we've discovered some incredible talent there was a young woman about five years ago who came to do the show. She said, Miss Ralph, please let me sing. Mm -hmm. And she was done in her little Michael Jackson type <laughs> look. And she could play the piano. She could play the guitar. She won a Grammy last year. She goes by the name of Her. Oh. A few years ago, we had a girl group on, little, little blonde, little white mm -hmm. girls. And I said, you know what? The two on the side are great, but you better watch that one in the middle because she's going somewhere. Who is she? Fergie Ferguson. No. Oh, absolutely. We had a Jennifer Hudson do the show, and mm. I said, mark my word, people, next year you will be saying, all hail the Oscar winner, Jennifer Hudson. And people were like, ha, ha, ha. Trust me, didn't it happen? I know talent. You know talent. I Give know me the talent. lottery numbers next. You are a psychic. <laughs> I'm not good at lotteries. <laughs> not good at lotteries. Talent, yes. Lotteries, no. So Speaking of talent, you've last question. You've done TV, you've done movies, you've done theater. What's your favorite to do? Mm, the one that pays me the most. Yeah. Shout out. Absolutely. Fair. The one that pays me the most, but I really love doing what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I prayed. I said, God, please give me a group of people that I would like to go to work and see every mm -hmm. morning. Because, you know, when you have those companies where you don't want to see the people that you work with, mm -hmm. that's a bad place to be. But to be with people that you like to work with, to see them growing mm -hmm. and changing and actually learning. You know, Odessa, this is our first big job. Right. It's great to be around her. It's incredible to work with Brian Stokes. Mitchell, who, after all the work I've done on Broadway, how we never worked together, I don't know how that doesn't, how that happened. And um, I love seeing Nina and Tone together as they mm -hmm. completely flip the script. And 
I have a podcast that's coming out called Diva Defined. Ooh. I love talking with people. And no, you know what I really love? I love listening to people. Interesting, okay. You know, I feel that, I feel that. I'm usually, as you can see, the listener in a conversation. Yes. <laughs> I love listening, and then yeah. I love asking the question to get the answer that I know is there yeah. so that we have the unexpected conversations. Mm. And it's gonna drop on January 10th, the same day as Bam, Just multi-layering these plugs today. You, this is a true professional right here. That's what I learned from Dreamgirls, mm. that you have got to multitask your career. And I did not realize that that would now become the way of, mm -hmm. this sh of show business right now. You have to be able to sometimes be able to shoot your show, edit your show, pick out the right music for your show, write your book. Yep. You've got to be able to do all those things and get it out there in a way that you can connect with the people and keep up on your social media, of which of I do, and I'm very proud of my Instagram <laughs> and my Twitter. Thank Amen. You. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank been an you. Absolute delight. January 10th. January Shirley 10th. Ralph Day. As she's reminding us, fan premieres on CBS on January 10th. Up next, we are responding to your tweets. Stick around, guys. Ooh. Hey guys, we asked you for the most painfully accurate way someone's ever dragged your job. Kirsten Baptiste says, someone said they couldn't do my job, hairstylist, because they couldn't put their hands in people's dirty hair all day. Mm. Holy cow, what a read. Yeah, that's, that's kind of rude. Yeah. Whatever. Bruh, I appreciate you, I'm Kirsten. sure you do great work. Yeah, I appreciate all hairstylists out hey. there. Well, Rachel Haygirlfield tweeted, I love that President Lena Wen is so confident. I want to speak as confident as her. Yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. She is just like a strong, independent, badass woman. She knew what she wanted to say and she came here to say it and bam. Yeah. Yeah, right? I know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna watch her uh, interview after this and just take some pointers on like how to appear as poised because I want to be that poised in my day-to-day -day life and I'm definitely not. <laughs> well, thank you to our guests today, John Stanton, Marianne Georgentopoulos, Emma Loop, Emma O'Connor, Dr. Liana Wynn, Ariane Lang, Charlie Warzel, and Cheryl Lee Ralph. Amber Jamison and Alex Berg will be here tomorrow at 10 a.m. All women, let's do yeah. this. See you then. Bye guys. <laughs>